Welcome to State of the State, the monthly roundup of policy and research for the state of Michigan, brought to you by the Institute for Public Policy and Social Research at Michigan State University and our friends here at WKAR Studios. I'm Arnold Weinfeld, Associate Director for the Institute. I'm joined as always by MSU economist, Dr. Charlie Ballard, and Institute Director, Dr. Matt Grossman. Later on, we'll be joined by two guests, Dr. Keith Hampton and Dr. Johannes Bauer both of whom are affiliated with MSU's Quello Center, which is focused on research that stimulates and informs public debate on media, communication, and information policy. We'll be discussing their latest report, which investigated the broadband gap and K-12 student performance, a subject made even more timely by the onset of the novel, novel coronavirus pandemic and resulting closure of schools for the remainder of the school year. But before we discuss that report, I'd like to turn to Matt and Charlie to discuss the continuing economic impact of COVID-19 and the stay home, stay safe order from the federal government and Governor Whitmer. And Charlie, I'd like to have you chime in uh, with some reflections on the economy. Um, I know you've been talking to other groups. What are your thoughts right now? I look for silver linings in any cloud, but this is a very cloudy cloud. Right now, um, this is the sharpest, fastest economic contraction that the United States economy has ever had. Um, Moody's Analytics says that daily output is down by 29% to give you nationally, and it's actually a little bit more than that in Michigan. Different states are slightly above or slightly below that national average of a 29% fall in economic activity. To give you some perspective, from 1929 to 1933, the Great Depression, uh, output fell by 26%. Uh, another perspective, uh, that 29%, that's very similar to the percentage by which the U.S. economy has grown since it began growing uh, in 2009 after the Great Recession. Uh, so at least for right now, we have given back all of the gains of the last 11 years. Uh, employment, uh, you, you probably saw the reports that in the last two weeks, just under 10 million Americans filed for unemployment compensation. It's quite likely that we'll get another uh, really rough report uh, in, when the next one comes out in a couple of days. Uh, so um, this, this is a, an unprecedented shock to the economy. Uh, there is no question we are in a recession now. The, the best that we can hope for, and there are th good things that we can hope for, uh, the best would be if we can get the virus under control. The sooner the, that we can do that, the, the, the better it'll be for the economy, because if we can begin to move back toward more normal activity, we may be able to have a fairly rapid rebound from this extraordinarily sharp downturn. But right now, in early April, it's... Uh, this is certainly a very, very difficult patch in terms of our health and in terms of our economy. So let me ask you something. There was a column today in the Detroit News by uh, one of their columnists, um, Ben Cole Thompson, who interviewed a, uh, an author uh, by the name of Thomas Sugru, uh, who had written a book, uh, The Origins of the Urban Crisis, Race and Inequality in Postwar Detroit. And his comment in, in this column is that there are two paths that can be followed after a crisis such as this. One, of course, that we've actually seen before in Detroit with more insecurity and a painfully slow recovery. 
the other response is to marshal our collective resources and make sacrifices for the common good. What are your thoughts about what this recession uh, at this point in time might mean for the city of Detroit and the state of Michigan? I mean, uh, you've been on here before noting that Michigan's economy was already moving at a much slower pace than the rest of the country before the pandemic. Well, I, I think we're going to be learning a lot of lessons. Uh, and um, uh, one of them is uh, the, the article that you mentioned contrasted every, every man for himself. If you're strong, good. If you're weak, tough luck uh, with a more uh, uh, inclusive and uh, approach. Um, certainly, I would argue that this crisis has shown us that we need to protect the most vulnerable. That, that in terms of broad economic policy, the thrust of economic policy in the United States in the last 40 years has been to protect the top 1% and to enhance their wealth, income, and power. I'm kind of hoping that we, that this, if, if any good can come out of this pandemic, maybe it'll be that we will have had a, a change in, in heart among some people and we may uh, move toward greater support for uh, those who are, who are vulnerable. Certainly, I think we're going to have some serious discussions when we emerge from this about the way that we have organized our health insurance system, where for most people, there's a strong link between employment and health insurance. Well, with the estimates running from 14 to 28 million Americans losing their jobs before this is all said and done, and many of them thus losing their health insurance. That's a, that's a system that is clearly deficient. And I think we may have, um, that may stimulate some really serious policy debate about making uh, health insurance coverage more universal. I guess we'll see. Matt, any thoughts on your end in terms of the economy or the politics of this moving forward? Well, we, we often have these uh, hopes that, that a crisis is going to kind of expand the discussion or make new solutions possible, um, but that isn't always uh, what happens. And particularly in, in U.S. state governments, um, I would expect uh, this to kind of contract the policy space fairly dramatically. Um, that's what happened in the, in the past recession. Everyone sort of cut at the same time. Everyone was reliant on federal resources at the same time and directed spending where they had to to, to get uh, federal resources. Um, and some of the, the sort of most expansive partisan agendas um, were dispensed with to deal with kind of the immediate crisis. And so that, I think, has to be your prediction as to what is going to happen, uh, regardless of, of Charlie's hopes. Um, that said, we uh, have now passed uh, three bills uh, nationally in, in Congress where you can put it all on the, on the credit card, um, unlike in, in most uh, state governments. And uh, there was some, some fairly expansive uh, policy, and there's talking about going back. Uh, so there, there is some chance uh, for federal policy uh, to expand in new, new directions, but I think most states are going to be put in a pretty tough predicament uh, by this uh, virus, the health crisis, and the associated economic collapse. I think it's fair to say that if uh, one listens to many state governors right now, they're already in that position, right? I mean, uh, the federal government, uh, and I've heard the president say that states should make every effort they can to purchase the equipment on their own. Uh, that's right. Uh, President Trump has, has certainly uh, tried to leave it uh, to, to the governors and not uh, provided 
um, as much as, as he could um, and not do as much coordination as past presidents have done. So governors are, are already uh, both fighting and coordinating uh, among uh, themselves. Um, and the longer term, uh, they're going to be very reliant on federal resources because right now they have some new expenditures and they have a dramatic drop in revenues coming. A part of the uh, stimulus package that was passed uh, a week or so ago uh, was um, $150 billion of uh, support for uh, state and local governments. If the state of Michigan can get its prorated share, and, and from sources I've spoken to, it's it, there is some bureaucracy between us and getting all that money. If we could get our share of that, uh, that would greatly help us to weather this storm. But right now, it's it's clear that without that, revenues are going to be way down, uh, and we would face uh, difficult choices of either uh, depleting the the rainy day fund very rapidly, or raising taxes never easy. Uh, or uh, slashing further expenditures so after decades of, uh, in many cases, pretty pretty large cuts to spending. So if we can get the, the federal money, that will reduce the pressure on those, those very difficult decisions. Yeah, right now it's about um, one-third of what we got uh, last time uh, from the stimulus bill in the, in the last recession. Um, there's a possibility uh, for more, um, but, but what happened last time is that that sort of postponed <laughs> the cliff um, rather than necessarily eliminating it. Um, and so it is possible that, that states could be reliant for a year or two on federal resources, um, but then still face a cliff after that. Either one of you, uh, the last recession, the Great Recession, as, as we've termed it, seemed to accelerate uh, major changes uh, in the workplace, uh, especially in manufacturing. Uh, we still make things here in Michigan. And, you know, before the pandemic, there was a lot uh, of, of comment, a lot of discussion about automation and the impact it was going to have over the course of the next decade or two. Any thoughts as to whether or not we might see that sped up and the workplace change dramatically because of the pandemic in this moment in time when companies and manufacturers once again have an opportunity to make those changes? The companies, uh, like the auto companies, for, for example, with factories uh, shut, they, they have time to uh, think about longer term issues. I don't think that I, we're likely to see a, an acceleration of automation. I just think we're likely to see a continuation of a long-term trend uh, in that direction, which you know, over the last many decades uh, has dramatically uh, reduced the number of people that it takes to make a car uh, or to make all, all sorts of other manufactured goods. I think that's likely to continue, uh, and that will likely continue to, to push in the direction of having manufacturing, instead of people doing hard physical labor, uh, standing at your station on the, on the assembly line and fastening the same four bolts 107 times an hour, increasingly in manufacturing, what you'll be doing is uh, computer systems and analysis and uh, servicing the robots that are doing much, much of the actual uh, physical work. Well, there's uh, implications for all disciplines in all sectors now and moving forward. And Matt, one of those that uh, our institute, along with uh, the Educational Policy Center at Michigan State University has investigated is the impact 
on K-12 education across the country. You want to discuss some of those findings? Well, sure. Nearly every state uh, has, has closed its schools. Um, many have already uh, ended face-to-face uh, -face instruction for the year, and many others will go down that route. And so what we're doing is tracking uh, what states have decided and attempting to provide some of the research background uh, to, to make some of their transitions uh, potentially more effective. But it is going to be a difficult situation. Um, essentially, most states uh, that we've seen make moves so far are telling the districts okay, you need to start distance education as soon as you can. You have to abide by every federal restriction in terms of students with disabilities or still providing individualized instruction uh, to uh, students uh, with special needs. And you, we don't have any resources for you and you need to do it in the next two weeks. And um, that is obviously going to be a big problem for everyone trying to implement it. Uh, there are some districts that are prepared uh, to distribute, say, internet-connected devices and provide some kind of curriculum for at least some age groups within their districts, but there is not a single state who was prepared even to the level that universities were prepared to shift all of a sudden uh, to providing statewide distance education. And while there's a lot of innovation that we're tracking in terms of um, being able to, to make contacts uh, in other ways, for example, some of the research does suggest that the contacts with teachers are, are most important. So if they can be done by mail or by phone or by text, they could also be effective. And so there are some districts innovating there, but everyone is learning on the fly. And so what we've tried to do is collect on our website what every state is doing, what they're requiring of their districts, and any materials that they're providing to their districts to, to make that happen. Now, while states are, are struggling, I think, as you note, it, it would appear, at least, you know, we've seen in conversations and news reports here in, our, in the state of Michigan, there are certain school districts that are able to provide or where students, a good majority of the students, have the equipment uh, and the access necessary to, you know, do online learning and, and distance learning. Any thoughts of this, you know, exacerbating, whether it's in an urban area or a rural area, exacerbating the divide, you know, knowing full well that, you know, online access is now important. What about the divide between the new, the 21st century haves and have nots, those that have access to these kinds of tools and, and those that don't? Well, of course, they're going to be large and ongoing um, and made more important uh, by the lack of face-to-face uh, instruction. Um, and uh, there's both, of course, across district inequalities that are going to be huge in preparedness and resources. Uh, there are cross student inequalities that are going to be massive. And uh, those two are going to interact such that the um, less resourced people in the less resourced districts are going to be the, the worst off. Now, I think in terms of state policy, we have to weigh that against the alternative, uh, which is essentially closing up shop and, and going home, which also has tremendous equity implications. The research from summer learning loss and from past localized disasters that produced early school closures 
suggests that there is tremendous learning loss and that it is concentrated uh, among uh, the, the least um, well-off students in the least well-off places. So unfortunately, uh, we're choosing between uh, bad alternatives uh, here. And unless districts get more resources uh, from the federal government or the state to try to counterbalance uh, those inequalities, they're, they're likely to be enlarged here. Well, and that's a good segue, I think, uh, to our two guests and their report on the broadband gap and K-12 uh, learning experiences. And with that, I'd like to welcome Dr. Johannes Bauer, who is director of the Coelho Center at Michigan State University, and Dr. Keith Hampton, who is associate director for academic research at the center. Um, as I noted, they've issued a report, a recent report. And again, uh, this report is another example of how we at the Institute for Public Policy and Social Research uh, work to support faculty work on matters of public policy uh, through some small grant making that we do. And so with that introduction, Dr. Hampton, uh, welcome. And why don't you start us off with a review of the, your work and findings? Hi, Arnold. Yes, of course. So about a year ago, uh, you know, much before this crisis, we set out to look at levels of digital inequality, primarily in rural Michigan. Uh, at the time, we were interested in uh, the mismatch between uh, federal data about uh, levels of connectivity and school districts' perceptions of that connectivity. And so we partnered with 15 school districts uh, and merit networks, uh, primarily rural school districts, uh, to look at levels of at-home connectivity, uh, what students were doing uh, online, uh, what types of devices they had, uh, their digital skills. And then most importantly, we were interested in how variation in those different levels of inequality was affecting uh, different types of performance related to uh, standardized test taking, uh, classroom grades, uh, intent to go on to university, uh, and even uh, uh, interest in STEM-related careers. Uh, so I think some of the kind of bigger highlights were, you know, when we looked at rural students, about 47% of those who were living in rural areas had some kind of high-speed internet access at home, comparing to about 77% in those suburban students that we interviewed. Those who uh, don't have any kind of home connectivity, about a third of them, uh, also don't have a computer at home. There's a very big gap between what students are doing uh, who don't have connectivity and those who do uh, in terms of uh, digital skills. So, for example, uh, those who are either uh, have no connectivity at home or were dependent on, say, a cell phone as their only types of access. The comparison between those and students with broadband access, uh, they're about three years behind on digital skills. They're about a half letter grade behind in almost every course. Uh, they are about seven or eight percent uh, percentile nationally lower on standardized test scores. So, so fairly big inequalities. Which is interesting um, in light of the, you know, stay home, stay safe order and the closing of schools. Uh, I, I seem to recall uh, that uh, the Speaker of the House, uh, Speaker Chatfield, who's from Levering in the northern lower peninsula, had sent a letter to the governor uh, outlining some recommendations and promoting online learning. Um, and at the same time, you know, the governor was initially dismayed by the Michigan Department of Education's ruling on online learning counting. As this debate has gone on, 
it seems to me to be uh, an interesting interesting issue that kind of enjoins urban and rural areas as well. Rural areas because of their uh, general lack of connectivity and maybe urban areas because of uh, typically uh, poor, lower income uh, families and students from those kinds of families don't have the means by which to purchase the necessary hardware. And uh, I'm wondering, Dr. Johannes Bauer, who works on quite a number of uh, policy issues, what's your feeling of the policy implications uh, of your report? If you had a chance to visit with any legislators at this time uh, moving forward? Our report has had influence on the ground. It was received by many people who were worried uh, and who are worried about how to navigate those difficult times. And I think Matt really hit the nail on the head uh, by saying that we this is a time when there are only least worst options going forward, where sort of the, the school system, but also other subsystems of society are not particularly well prepared uh, for an event like this. Some of these inequalities are difficult to overcome in the short term. It's not that we didn't know them. They, they have been known for decades, I mean, uh, uh, 10 years ago in response to the last crisis, or the latest, I should say, maybe before this one, the, the federal government issued a national broadband plan that laid out the territory as to what needed to happen to, to be able to use broadband uh, to increase productivity in the economy, to deliver important government services, to deliver educational services. And we made significant progress in the meantime, but broadband is not yet at all those uh, locations where it should be to really have a second effective mode of education in a crisis like this. But it's not just an infrastructure issue. Uh, it's also a, a, an attitude issue and it's a, it's a, it's a skills issue. Uh, and the skills really en encompass a lot of different players in that, in that space. One is you know, the, how the schools teach. Uh, the other one is how parents uh, react to, this, to technology and how they can support their children. And finally, how how students can use the college. So, so it's an infrastructure issue, it's a device issue, and it's a skills issue. And so there's sort of systemic needs to, to really rethink how education happens. And uh, I think that's going forward a big opportunity for one, but also a big challenge to make this happen. Yes, I, uh, I recall in one of my previous careers with the Michigan Municipal League, I was uh, directly involved in the Michigan Telecommunications Act rewrite of 2006. And then very familiar with the Great Recession, the stimulus package from the federal government, which poured in about, as I recall, uh, $250 million to the state of Michigan to um, expand our broadband networks, uh, especially up until what's known as the last mile, which is that connection between uh, the household and the provider. And it's been many of the rural areas, I think, where we've seen issues with the uh, provision of, of the last mile, is it not? That is certainly true for, for rural and small town areas. And there are several factors in play. One is the fact that connecting uh, decentralized households with broadband is expensive. 75% of the technology cost to deploy is actually civil engineering work of, of, of laying ducts and cables and so forth or connecting via wireless technologies. Since the United States generally relies on market forces to, uh, to price and deliver those services, the high cost is an obstacle for many entrepreneurs to deliver to those rural locations. The only condition under which they would do it is at, at relatively high prices, which then is, of course, uh, an obstacle to consumers to, to purchase uh, subscriptions. 
Now there's programs in place from the federal government, from the state government to reduce the cost of access uh, for the consumer, but also for the provider. There's high cost support programs. There's sort of a low, low income support uh, programs in place for individuals, but those are not far reaching enough. They don't really uh, reach all the populations that are now affected by this crisis. So what needs to be done is we need to rethink uh, those historically grown programs. Some of them, or most of them, date back actually to the time of telephone uh, service, when the, the worry was to bring telephone lines to people, which is, is much cheaper than, of course, to bring broadband. And we need to update those to, to the current uh, demands. There's, on the one hand, uh, also hope because technology has become cheaper over time. There's, there's uh, lower cost technologies that can be deployed more effectively. Uh, there's probably opportunities to use wireless services or satellite-based internet services in, a, in an innovative way that are less expensive than, let's say, to put fiber optical cables to those locations. But as I said before, access is only one part of this equation. One also has to keep in mind that uh, many households are constrained by not having the right devices and not having the skills. And then the last point that I would like to mention here briefly is that this is not just a rural or small town issue. We see the same or even more egregious divides and inequalities actually in urban areas where the differences between those who are connected and those who are not connected for income or for, for, for not non-availability issues are as large as they are in, in rural Michigan. Uh, Keith, what are your hopes with this report? Where do you kind of go from here? Well, I mean, that's a great question. I mean, a year ago when we started this, I think our hope would have been, we, we know these inequalities exist. Let's start preparing uh, so that if there is a disaster, uh, so that if uh, we think about, you know, the outcomes that are affecting different students, that we're prepared to address those. I think the hope today is You're much honest. different than it was a year ago. And so now uh, I think our hope would be that uh, in reviewing the report that policymakers think about when we're releasing this technology to address issues of connectivity for students, that we're not just stopping at issues of connectivity. Uh, I think Johannes you know, addressed this really nicely and that it's really also about skill and devices. Uh, you know, cell phone only access is not equivalent to having uh, high-speed access in the computer in the home. And even once you overcome these inequalities in access, uh, students are going to be experiencing massive differences in their digital skills and ability to engage online with content. And that's even before we address uh, inequalities in, in parents' and, and teachers' digital skills. Right. And I think as your report, and maybe you pointed this out, uh, noted, those that have, and I think you, one of you may have discussed this, that those with these kinds of, with these kinds of tools, devices, and access have better opportunity at post-secondary education. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. So those who are uh, both higher in digital skills and those with broadband access are much more likely to say that they're going to go on to post-secondary education. And they're also more likely to say that they're interested in STEM-related careers. We do know uh, that post-secondary education skills, whether going to college or technical training, has a lot to do with economic prosperity. Charlie, if, if are, are you there? Can you speak to at all uh, the impact of uh, post-secondary and higher education to one's economic prosperity if you're there. I know Charlie's done a lot of work on that particular matter. 
uh, especially uh, with uh, Michigan Future and, and Lou Glazier about uh, higher education and the importance of post-secondary education. And so I think what your report, Keith and Johannes, helps to um, emphasize once again is indeed the importance of having access to the tools, to the uh, necessary uh, digital piece and uh, technology that it takes to get ahead in life. I mean, and that's, that's really what I, I think access to broadband is these days. It's essential to economic prosperity as electricity and the telephone was in the, uh, in the, in the 20th century. Charlie, you there? Yeah, I'm there. Actually, this is a great illustration of some of the uh, things that you're talking about because I had a uh, my computer burped, and and <laughs> then I uh, I was uh, I was tossed out of the the Zoom, and then I had to get back in. And so these are the kinds of problems that you don't face when you have face to face meetings. Uh, but you're absolutely right. Education is the strongest indicator of future earnings. Uh, and the, the differences between the earnings of those with more education and those with less have widened very dramatically in the last 40 years. Actually, um, among men, uh, the average real earnings for those with high school diploma or less are less now than they were in the early 1970s. For those with a bachelor's degree or more, there's been pretty good growth. So education is absolutely crucial and increasingly i think uh, digital sophistication is going to make a a huge difference from the perspective of small businesses the one thing that the state can do that can do them that would help them the most would be to ensure broadband because if you're living in some remote part, parts of rural michigan and you have a bright idea it's very difficult to to bring that to the market Talk to folks in agriculture these days, and you know, they need broadband just as much as anybody using GPS for plantings and fields and 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 the like. And I I really do think that at this particular moment in time in history is a key opportunity provides a key opportunity for the marriage of maybe uh, you know disparate places such as rural and urban to come together and have policymakers and the public understand the importance of investment in an area such as broadband and making sure people have uh, access to the tools and the devices they need uh, to get ahead. So I want to thank uh, both Keith and Johannes and your team and all those that were involved in the report and your work on this very important matter. Uh, certainly, it's going to give policymakers and educators much to think about and consider as we enter uh, this time of greater efforts on distance learning. Uh, Matt and Charlie, always a pleasure to be with you. Any last thoughts uh, before we sign off on this round? Wash your hands. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'll just uh, chime in for a, a plug for thinking about the next school year. Um, the students are going to come uh, back uh, behind where they otherwise would be, even if you assume the very best efforts on behalf of uh, uh, students, teachers, uh, and districts to try to make these haphazard changes very quickly. So the easiest way to, to make up that lost learning is actually going to be more instruction. That is a longer school year or a longer school day. And there are a few states thinking about it, but it of course has to come with, with longer, with more resources uh, to, to make happen. And those are uh, currently in short supply. Uh, Governor Whitmer opened the door. She said uh, that districts could uh, advance 
different schedules for next year, um, but it's not just different schedules that are going to be necessary. It's actually more instruction. Well, thank you both, as always, for co-hosting uh, the State of the State podcast with me. Special thanks to Dr. Bauer and Dr. Hampton for their great work. Uh, thank you, we'll Arnold. Look, yep, we'll look for more of uh, more thoughts from you, as and I'm sure this discussion will be ongoing. As as Matt has noted, it's not just the end of this school year. Uh, there's there's next school year, not just in K-12, but also for our state universities as, as well. Um, that's all the time we have for this edition of State of the State. My thanks again to Russ White at WKAR for their support of this program. And I'd ask that you join us again next time on State of the State.